On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about climate change and housing inventory. We talk about birth rates, how we might actually have an oversupply, interest rates, how to get more housing inventory. It's going to be an incredible show. Tune in. You talk about it privately. We talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered podcast. Welcome again to the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, James Swiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, aka Crazy Uncle Keith. Yes, sir. Keith, yes. we had uh, Danielle Hale coming on with uh, economics. Economist. Economics. You economic nerds, tell us yes. what she's uh, what she's going to cover. Right, we, we unpack a lot. We talk about affordability. We talk about inventory. We talk about interest rates. We talk about uh, friend and nearshoring. Yeah, Google that one, kiddos. Uh, James, of course, has to nerd out on the weather. Turns Whatever. out he's a weather nerd too. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, man, we covered a lot of stuff. We did Brilliant. talk about climate change just to irritate people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also it's talked a- about uh, household formation, immigration. So that's a fun one. So, yes. yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant economists yeah. and with great insights all the way down to like how that will impact dining people in their dining rooms and living rooms. So, awesome conversation out of blast. Danielle, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you here. I know Keith is even more excited than I am because he is a resident uh, wannabe economist nerd. Oh, so oh, you kind of are. Wannabe. I mean, well, I, I mean, I am the non-economist economist. That's yes, what I am. Yes. yes, I am an economics nerd, but I don't have the credentials to be the chief economist for anyone. Well, Danielle, I can total I can tell you that Keith has been very uh excited about having you on the show because yeah. he loves to talk stuff. So he'll he'll lead a lot of this stuff because it's way over my head. But um at least for the listeners and viewers, give us just a quick quick background, uh position, what you do there, uh how you got there, and then we'll move on to our rapid fire questions before Ooh. we dive deep. So Ooh. we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background, et cetera. All right. Well, I'm the chief economist at Realtor.com. I've been here about six years now, and I lead our economic research team. And we, it's our goal to figure out what's going on in the housing market and help people understand it. And people can be consumers, the industry, anybody who wants to know and understand what's going on in the housing market. So that's where I am now. I came to Realtor.com from almost a decade at the National Association of Realtors. Okay. In real estate research for a while now. Um, and then before that, I had another job that uh, I didn't think would play in handy at the time, but it turns out to be very, very valuable. Now I work as a research assistant uh, for uh, a guy named Dr. Alan Meltzer, who wrote a book that he very modestly titled A History of the Fed. It's enormous. <laughs> you might be able to see it over there on my bookshelf. It's three volumes. It really should be titled The History of the Fed, um, but he is a modest guy. And so anyway, I did some research on the Fed, which has been very helpful in my current career. I bet. I bet. Like, it, have you ever read the book? We're already off script, but have you ever read the book, uh, Something Something Jekyll Island? You ever read that one? Oh, no. It's like the conspiracy theory about how the Fed was formed and a bunch of robber barons getting together to control stuff. You should read it. You should read it. You, <laughs> I'll have yeah. to check it out. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It sounds counter to what we did together, but um, yeah, all right, no, so, right, exactly. Yeah, literally the opposite of what <laughs> yeah. she what she yeah, helped write. It, it would uh, be like if TMZ did the history of the Fed. Yeah, or Rob Hahn wrote the history of the <laughs> Fed. Right. 
it'd be really far out there. Yeah, so yeah. uh cheers to you, Rob. I'm sure you're listening. So um uh, okay, so I do have one question on that. So it's interesting. You were at NAR for a long time, and then obviously at Realtor.com. What? What? Just curious. The data you have access to at Realtor.com has to be fascinating from tracking consumer behavior and just seeing things from, you know, an aggregator of data versus you know an organization that's trying to get data from various sources versus the one that's actually generating it. So just. A little bit of insight real fast before we go to rapid fire. Like what's that, what's that difference been between the two organizations? Yeah. So I love that. I already had familiarity with the MLS data, which NAR collects in their existing home sales series and pending home sales series. So it was really great background for the transition to realtor.com. We get to marry that MLS data and listings information with consumer behavior on the website. So we can, you know, learn all kinds of interesting things about like which listings people are engaging with, where people are, where they're shopping for homes. Our cross-market demand data is really popular with agents. If you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the referral network potential in your market and where people are coming from, that's really interesting. Hmm. Um, So you get to sort of have a foot in both worlds with the the listing data and the consumers, which is great. Any uh, like ahas or like, huh, that was interesting when you sort of transitioned from you know, the, I guess the, the white, the classroom whiteboard of NAR to the consumer interfacing of realtor.com. Was there anything where like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm trying to think back. I, I mean, I think just the vast amount of data yeah. that is, is available and then trying to make sense of it. <laughs> you, you have to do a lot of, uh, a lot of summarization yeah. exactly yeah. in order yeah. to get to something that's meaningful. Mm. Um, and that's really challenging at NAR. You're trying to gather as much as you can at realtor.com. We're trying to strip away to get to the true essence of what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's great insight. All right. So uh, we have three questions we want to ask, and then we'll go really deep into the show here. So three, three rapid fire questions and just do them real fast. This came from watching uh, Stephen Colbert do it. So we're trying to <laughs> mimic Stephen. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Steve. Superhero. Who would it be and why? If you had, if you were, if you were to pick a superhero, who would it be? So I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to pick two. Okay. Wonder Woman, who is strong and powerful and capable, but also... Okay kind and selfless and feminine, which I think is inspiring, but she's a demigoddess. So, you know, not real. I like, you know, I think there's something really appealing about Iron Man. He's a selfless yes. Seems maybe more achievable and, you know, the combination of human frailty with technological possibility. Well, First I was going to say billionaire deep. playboy is not <laughs> achievable, but like, well, that's, <laughs> like, that's why you want to be Iron Man, Jay. <laughs> what? I mean, that's not bad either, I suppose, but yeah, yeah. I think, Danielle, I hate to bring it to you. Uh, Yes, demigods aren't real, but neither is Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but that's like, you know, it's possible. You never know what human genius can come up with, you know? We didn't know we were going to get such thoughtful answers to the question. That was Yeah, we're going. We're going. Mine's like the Hulk because I like to break stuff. (laughs) Literally, the end. Uh, All right, so favorite book or podcast this year and why? Just for other listeners to hear. Yes, I'll be honest. I don't think I've listened to a single podcast all year. It used to be my... Pick a book. Go-to workout. Yeah. I also haven't read much either. <laughs> um, but one of my old go-tos that I just haven't listened to recently is the Freakonomics podcast. Yeah, sure. Probably not Great a surprise. One. I really like the idea of how economic theory can frame the way or reframe the way we think about everyday life. That's so surprising that you... I don't understand why it had the word economics in it. So it's a strange. It is a great podcast. You're not wrong. 
It is a good one. You're right. Even I've listened to that. So, uh, all right. So last one is if you could have lunch with one person, current or historical, this is a good one, by the way, who would it be and why? It would be Julia Child because lunch would be delicious. Yes. Yes. And her life and career experience is so interesting. It like wasn't linear. She sort of went on this roundabout journey to end up where she was. And I find that fascinating. She was actually... The, she was like a social media influencer arc, career arc before there was such a thing, right? Like sort of discovered, started, and then it exploded into this whole crazy thing. Yeah. Well, she yeah. changed cooking like generally in itself, but she's yeah. also amazing. By the way, fun fact, the oh, table that she used to cook on that go. you saw on the TV shows is mm-hmm. actually at Camus. No, it's not Camus. It's a... Uh, it's actually at Stag's Leap Winery, and I just happened to see it the other day. They actually bought it, and it's there. The actual one that had the mirror where it was you could see the food when you watched the show. I don't know if anyone remembers or not, but like that's actually at the winery. Fun fact. So yeah. <laughs> totally useless information that I thought I would share with the listeners. All right, let's get into the important stuff because everyone's like, yes. enough of this bullshit. Let's go to what we're talking about and why you're here. Um, All right, uh, I have the first you, one. I have the first one. Go, go you first. go. Okay. Do it. So Do it. Uh, we're going to give you a promotion. Don't tell anyone at Realtor. You are now the U.S housing czar yeah okay you are in charge of all things residential real estate and housing we obviously have an affordability issue shocker we have an economist on a podcast we're going to talk about affordability if you were the u.s housing czar what were some solutions you would implement tomorrow i love this question i think the way you frame the question is actually really smart because it sort of (laughs) illustrates one aspect of the problem which is there is no U.S. housing czar. There's this multitude of, you know, federal regulatory bodies and state regulatory bodies and local regulatory bodies that sort of all work together to try to shape policy. And when you've got people working together to try to come up with policy, you've got to agree on things. And that's hard to do. Um, So sure, if we had a housing czar, problem solved overnight, we're going to build housing everywhere. You know, who cares what anybody thinks about that? And then, yeah, you know, yeah. your affordability problem I'm not, solved. I'm not a fan of dictators, but they are efficient. <laughs> <laughs> they are efficient, right? Was it? Uh, I'm probably going to get this quote wrong. I think it was like Churchill said, you know, democracy is the least efficient form of government or something to that effect. But yeah, yeah. sounds about right. Yeah. You know, I think what we can do and what we certainly try to do, because we're in a position to contribute data and understanding highlighting the problem, Mm. uh, you know, to make policymakers aware, to make consumers aware, voters aware of the problems, which are that we don't have enough housing in this country. Now, figuring out where to build it and where everyone's going to be okay with building it, uh, because it's going to cause some change in neighborhoods across the country, that's, you know, easier said than done. There's definitely a need there. You know, our estimate is on the order of, you know, between two and six million, kind of depending on the assumptions that you use to frame the question. So it's a big hole um, yeah. to build. Yeah, really big, to, really big hole. And then, you know, on top of that, kind of taking a look at the regulatory environment, NAHB estimates, estimates that the cost of regulation adds about 25% or so the cost of new single family construction and regulation can be valuable. It certainly is. It improves, you know, the quality of the construction that we're getting. And, you know, I'm I'm not a building standards expert, right? So I'm not going to pretend to tell you, you know, what's important and what's not, but it certainly adds to the cost. And oftentimes, um, you know, these, uh, these codes are uh, put in place without necessarily 
respect to the cost that it imposes on builders and on the final consumer. So right. you mean kind of politicians make- didn't do research and like understand <laughs> like the outcome of something they're voting on? Yeah. Whoa. Uh, well, it's not politicians that put them in place. It's like the local regulatory <laughs> body. Yeah. <laughs> the point's yeah. the same. So, yeah. um, yeah. well, so I, I, I'm just a cop. Two comments that we hear quite often, and we've had other guests on the show have talked about this. Zoning laws is certainly something that they could look at. There's obviously going to be a lot of commercial space that you know Keith and I've chatted about this. How do we convert some of this to condos? How do we take what's going to be potentially a lot of inventory and 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 move that into something that solves some short-term, uh, you know, problems? And then you know, I I lived in San Francisco for a very long time, and I call that the epicenter of stupidity when it comes to environmental laws. So, and I'm not look, I can say that, but you could spend eighteen <laughs> <just> months. <laughs> yeah. You spend eighteen yeah. months trying to get a permit to do something, and the costs and the expenses to go through that, you want to know why housing is so damn expensive. To your point, there's your 25%. So, you know, those are certainly things that other states do better. And I'm not saying we aren't supposed to pay attention to the environment. I want to be clear with my statements, but that's not, that's what I heard though. uh, No, I'm I'm correcting it, but (laughs) there has to be, I think, Daniel, to your point a balance of like, how are we solving these short-term issues because we have a lot of people that don't have housing and it's getting very expensive. Well, so. What I love about what you said, Danielle, is you, you've got a, there isn't one sort of overseer who's driving right. everything forward. And so uh, what is that that old line? Uh, a camel is a horse built by committee, right? right. And, and so that's a little bit of what we have in our, in our residential real estate ecosystem, right? Is how do you balance the need for a house that doesn't fall over in an earthquake in California, right? Or right. Uh, we don't want hot water heaters tipping over in an earthquake or, or, or all the things that, that they're trying to make sure that they keep people safe. But every one of those things does add to the cost. And that's an inherent challenge in trying to crack for the code for affordability. Sure. And not to mention, if you build houses in like, you know, a floodplain, like, and you keep rebuilding it after it's been flooded, like those are all (laughs) conversations that we should get on for an insurance portion. All right, let's dive into the next one. We've got, we have a lot of stuff we want to ask you. So historically around 5.3 million units annually in the U S is what real estate typically does moves a little bit, but somewhere around that number where I think seasonally adjusted right now at 4.2 was the last number I read from NAR. It could be off on that. You tell me, but, um, where do you, how, I guess, how long in your eyes do you see before we start to normalize again? What kind of time frame? what's your, what's your read on that based upon what you're seeing? Okay. So our forecast is 4.2 million for 2023 as a whole. So it's okay. going to be a low year for most of the year. Um, we were at, you know, so there are two numbers to pay attention to the seasonally adjusted pace, which is like what any one month sales pace would equate to if we saw that continue right. for the year. Mm-hmm. So while we slowed down a lot at the second half of 2022, the first half of 2022 was actually still pretty good. And so it was ripping, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the total for 2022 was actually only um, 5 million sales. So not as bad as where we ended up at the end of the year. Um, I think if you look at it, the housing frenzy, we were well above that 5.3 million pace for about 22 months. And I think, you know, we've, we've been down below it now 13 months. I, I think it's going to take about as long. It's like a hangover. Yeah. Right? So like the hangover uh, is going to last about as long as we were having a party. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, 
you know, without regard to anything else that's going on in the macro environment, which is all very important, I would guess that we've still got another eight to 10 months to go. I appreciate okay. you using an analogy that, that I he really, spends most of his life really in. understand. Right. <laughs> yes. But what I, what I think is really interesting and correct about what you said is, and I don't hear this getting mentioned very often, is we pulled forward mm. a, a million-ish transactions right? In uh, even more, if you go back uh, a couple of years during the frenzy, a whole lot of people bought houses that wouldn't normally have bought houses at that time frame, right? Because of work from home and pandemic and all of the things that attributed to it. So we pulled forward a bunch of deals. Everyone wants to say it's interest rates and people are trapped in their homes. And there's some truth to that. But I hear very few people talking about the pull forward event that we had and how that does create great analogy a hangover effect in the in the in the couple of years after that so great great point i i wanted to since we kind of just talked about this uh and keith mentioned it a little bit so a lot of the talking points on the news is is sort of people you know trapped in their their rate um and keith and i debate this often we do we we do actually <laughs> so i'm in the camp that i think that that's there's a there's a lot of people that fall into that keith's to the opinion i won't speak for him but he's i think he's in the mic he's like it's a lot less than people say it is what is your take on that is that a true thing like what are you feeling what are you seeing what are you hearing yes yeah, so i think it is a phenomenon we have um you know it's hard to actually measure there's some survey data that kind of gets at it um we know that for example like one in seven people says they're not selling right now because of high mortgage rates and they don't want to give up their current mortgage rate. I mean, for context, about half of people who say they're not selling say it's because their home's a good fit. So it is a factor. It is not the only reason why um, people are not selling. We had a lot of people who just bought a home. Hopefully they made good decisions, right? And so they don't need to necessarily move for a little while. Um, we also know that uh, roughly 80% or so of people who are shopping for a house right now that, you know, own a house that they'd need to sell, say that, you know, current, their current low mortgage rate is a factor. Some are planning to move ahead anyway and go ahead and make that Life transition, events. even though they're right. giving up the low rate. Uh, but for some, they're not sure they're looking, but they're not sure if they're going to actually make that transition. So I think it is a factor um, as far as how long it's going to continue to be the factor. Well, that depends on what happens to mortgage rates yeah. um, and how big the gap remains. Um, but, you know, you're looking at roughly two thirds of homeowners have a mortgage that's at or below 4%. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a pretty good deal. Now, this is something that doesn't get talked a lot about. And um, I have an idea for a research piece, but it just hasn't gotten done yet on um, what that means for their equity picture. Mm -hmm. So the longer you can hold on to a low mortgage rate, the faster you will build up equity. And I think it's fast enough to actually like make a difference. Mm. And so I don't think we're going to see this cliff. A lot of people have talked about the cliff at like what, you know, how low do mortgage rates have to fall before people just like jump back into the market. Instead, what I think we're going to see is that pressure build up from life changes and that equity build up so that people can leverage that equity to trade up. And even if they're getting a higher mortgage rate, they'll have a smaller amount of debt and they'll be willing to make that change. Interesting. Oh, so when she says it, you're like, oh, now I get it. But when yeah, I but say that's it, you're like, like you're that's an idiot. because you're like mom and dad talking to me. I don't listen to anything you say. Fair, so, fair. Uh, uh, thank you for saying it because I hear almost no one saying it. Please do that research paper uh, and I will post it everywhere. I will scream and shout it from the mountaintops because I, I believe it is 
a factor for some people. And I also think there's an echo chamber effect where there's so much discussion around the difference in interest rates. You get this, it's the stated reason often. I don't believe it's the actual reason as often as it's stated. It's more of an affordability thing. If I can't afford it, then I'm not going to do it. And my stated reason will be interest rates. But if I'm happy in my home, I may not say I'm happy in my home. I might just say it's because of interest rates. Right. So I think it's a it's an outsized. It is a legitimate factor that prohibits some people from trading up. But it's the stated reason more often than it's the actual reason. What's your take on the Fed? Do you think that they're going to do another hike this month and in September? I know everybody asked you this, but like I have to know. And then and the (laughs) follow up is where do you think that rates will start to come down? Just you're the economist. What's your take? So. Yeah, so the Fed, um, you know, they got a really good inflation report. Uh, yeah. June inflation report was was really good. Um, it, was, by, it was a little better than I expected, actually. By uh, good, do you mean bad or by? <laughs> <laughs> no, by good, I mean inflation is coming down. Correct. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. overall inflation, headline inflation is down to 3%. Core inflation, you know, is still up on a year-over-year basis. But if you look at, like, the monthly change, and you say, okay, what would inflation look like if that monthly change continued for another 12 months? You know, we're very close to target. I believe it was 2.2% um, on core inflation. So, um, you know, it, it's a significant improvement. It was much better. I mean, we knew it was going to improve just because you're rolling off some really big uh, month-to-month changes from a year ago. Um, but the month-to-month change was actually very good, very low um, this month. <laughs> I still think that the Fed is going to err on the side of being the last one to claim victory. (laughs) And they have to, because if they claim victory, then everybody gets a party started again. And that could be problematic. So I expect they will still hike rates again um, this month. I think, I think this inflation data was good enough that it's an open question of whether or not they need the second rate hike that they projected before the end of the year. But a lot depends on how that inflation data comes in. Yeah. Yeah. As as they like to say, they will continue to be data dependent. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> we call dodging the questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, with that kind of thought process in mind, where do you see interest rates and, and sort of timeframes in your, in your opinion? Is it we get down into the fives in the next 12 months? Do you think we're headed towards a recession? Actually, I want to ask that one. Do you think we're headed towards a small recession? Like we're- Or a big one. Kind of, or a big one. Yeah. yeah. What is your take here? Um, I do think recession risks are a possibility. I think it's going to be more like 2024. If you look at the consumer, the U.S. consumers are in a pretty good position. Incomes are still growing. You still have a really good job market. And on top of that, you still have a lot of pandemic savings that haven't been spent down. You do see that there's this disconnect between people's current budgets and spending <laughs> and their incomes. So, like, are you, are you talking to me, right? I feel like I feel like you're talking to me. That's not kind. I feel attacked. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel it too when I go to the grocery store. Um, but you know, so there there is a disconnect where people are kind of dipping into their pandemic savings to support current spending. That can only continue for so long. Mm-hmm. Probably, it can continue through the rest of this year, maybe into early next year. And then at that point, you, you either have to see incomes pick up or spending, you know, get cut back in order to see um, that savings picture maintain um, the way we expect it to. So I think the bigger risk is in 2024. Um, but yeah, you also asked me about mortgages. Right. Oh, sorry. Right. oh uh, on the recession piece, are you a hard landing economist or a soft landing? Or do you just think that's silly to even talk about? I mean, 
I'm an optimist. You can't be in real estate without being an optimist. So I'm really hoping for a soft landing. I think you should sort of prepare for the possibility of a hard landing because it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm rooting for Chair well, Powell and the and, Fed. And the longer it looks like I, I was, I have bashed Powell in the past, but the longer this goes, the direction that he said it would, the more right he is becoming. Right. And so that I was initially six, eight, 12 months ago, I was like, yeah, this is going to be a hard landing. You can't do what we've done and have a saw that's not possible. And, but he's proving me wrong every single month, every single quarter. It seems like we are more likely for a soft landing than I thought at any other time in this sort of process that we've been going through. So um, maybe that makes me an optimist too. Yay. Yeah. I mean, you're not alone. It has been very surprising to see how resilient the economy is and yeah, thank goodness for that. I'm glad he's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I still want to point out the fact because I was a pessimist that he should have started the stuff a little bit earlier in the process, but that's just me. So yeah, um, it would have been a little bit less painful to start. Both could be earlier. right. Both uh, could be right. <laughs> um, and interest rates. I know that's a big one. Everyone's want to hear. What is your thoughts on that? Where do we end up? And where where are we looking in 2024? Because this year is pretty much gone. So. Yeah. So we expect to get back close to six percent at the end of the year in 2024. You know. A lot's going to depend on if inflation does, in fact, come down. I'm an optimist. I think that it will, um, not quickly, but so I, I think we'll see rates settle in the five to six percent range um, as we move into 2024. I mean, the Fed's pulled way back on um, mortgage back pur- uh, mortgage back securities purchases, <laughs> um, and y- so that's that's a reason why we're not seeing. Uh, we're seeing a bigger gap between uh, treasury rates and mortgage rates, for instance. There's also a lot of volatility in the market and uncertainty about the direction for mortgage rates and interest rates going forward. And so I think that um, creates some caution on the part of lenders where you know, they'd rather be positioned for higher rates uh, so that they aren't caught flat-footed um, if rates change. Um, but I, I think as those become less important factors in 2024, we could see rates move back down. And I do want to reiterate what you said earlier, because I, again, I don't hear enough people talking about it is you said there's not going to be this cliff effect where we go from seven to five, right? It's going to be this sort of gradual march down and it gets a little, every quarter point move down, it gets a little easier for some folks to trade up or uh, they get less quote unquote stuck in their house. Right. So it's not this, there's no like rate at which everybody's like, oh, an alarm bell goes off and everybody comes back in. It's going to be this sort of steady, methodical march downward in rate, which will increase the number of people who can do it. Yeah. And I mean, it's not going to be super steady. There's probably going to be bump, bumps yeah, along correct. the road. Yeah, but yes. I think in general, we're going to see this downward trend and that is yeah, the trend line back mm-hmm. to the market. Yeah. yeah. To, Keith, you had a question you wanted to ask this is totally out of my realm about geopolitical stuff and just i literally yeah well that word so yeah 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 yeah. so (laughs) i guess this really goes kind of back to this sort of inflation target of 2.2 percent one of the theories that i have is that that's just an unrealistic inflation target we've gone through a 30-year period where labor was incredibly cheap you could get things built in china for a fraction of the cost that you could somewhere else that's still true but we're migrating away from some of these places where you could have lower labor costs or or by globalization, we got this period where inflation was artificially low. If we're de-globalizing, I don't think that's a word, if we're nearshoring or friendshoring or, or not going to the cheapest place in the world for labor, but the safest place in the world for labor, whatever that may be, then that has to change the dynamic for 
inflation, right? Like, so doesn't that make the two per 2.2 that they've been paying attention to over the last 30 years? Cause that's how it's been. Doesn't that make that a little unrealistic? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think it, you know, if you're not necessarily going to lowest cost provider that is going to raise costs, I don't, I've not done enough research to know if I think that that throws the 2% in question. I think research paper. Yeah, yes. exactly. Thanks for giving me homework. You're welcome. We will you know, in it soon. We will have Danielle on again to discuss uh, the these impact two things now. Yeah. of near shoring and friend shoring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think low and stable prices, which means low steady inflation of 2% is a good thing for the economy. So I yeah. think, you know, in theory, once you, make those shifts, there's no reason you, you might see a one-time increase in costs, right. but there's no reason that costs would continue to increase faster once you've made that transition. So it might be an adjustment period. Yeah. That's or maybe fair. that's yeah. what we're living through now, mm. but I don't know. I probably have to do more research on that. Fair, fair. All right. So we're going to get into two <laughs> questions that will irritate half of our listeners because yeah. why wouldn't we? So, um, please don't unsubscribe. <laughs> So very interesting. This started with a topic and just a backstory. There was an interview I was watching with Elon Musk, which is already controversial. Yeah. Uh, and Three they asked him, they, yeah, they, uh, they asked him, what's the thing that scares you the most? And they were expecting an answer of artificial intelligence. And he actually didn't say that. What he said was population decline was the thing that scares him the most. And I was like, what the hell is, I didn't, I actually kind of understood it, but I was like, what is he referring to? So I went and did a bunch of research and Keith can talk about this because you were at his Zellman conference. Yeah. And you came up to this, you said this two years ago when you keep seeing these estimates. I'm giving backstories, it's important. So we're roughly 4.3 million units short of housing in the United States is the latest estimate. I believe, if I read that correctly from Fannie, and it was 3.8 million in September of last year, somewhere around those numbers. But Keith Wage's comment that Zellman's been saying we actually have an oversupply when you take in population decline into effect. I'm summarizing here, but it I, I'm I've Really curious if economists are, is this a thing? Is this a long-term thing? Are people paying any attention to it? It's just Elon Musk saying stupid shit. Like what is, <laughs> what, is, what, is your, what is your general theme on that? Because I started to do this research and there actually, this is a oh, thing Lord. in other go. countries. So yes. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a thing. It's um, Demographics matter for housing. People live in houses. If you don't have people, you don't have housing demand. It's pretty pretty basic right there. Right. But, you know, as far as, I, and I will say, I am not a demographic expert about knowing when exactly this will happen. Um, you know, I think, and I don't know the details of the Zellman research, but I think if you if you look at the current state, vacancy rates, the fact that homes are selling quickly, the fact that prices are, as stable as they are when we've had demand pull back the way it has, all of this suggests that we don't have enough houses for sale right now sure. and enough yeah. housing supply right now. Um, but what that looks like as the baby boomers age and eventually age out of their homes, you know, I, I think that's an open question. People have been talking about this coming wave of baby boomer selling um, for years. And I think, you know, I think people expected it to have started by now and I don't think it has, um, but there are, you know, Housing is going to have to respond to demographic adjustments. As far as, you know, declining population, yeah, there's a whole body of research out there, I will admit, to not being super current on it, but it is important. Yeah, and I think it's more just that it is never factored into the discussion. That's right? the point. Yeah. No one talks about it. They're like, this is what it is, but 
Keith, to your comment, Zellman was doing some research going, there's a tipping point right. where we're not having enough children. And at the same time, the aging demographic, where if you look at the math, and Keith, you were there, but like mm -hmm. they basically say you end up with an oversupply. Well, the, the inversion happens quicker than you think when you start to factor in uh, the age demographics, right? It isn't going to be the baby boomer rollover. I love that we call it age out. That's such a kind way to say die, <laughs> right? But uh, when they age out, uh, we'll see what happens. How much of that is going to be turned into rental inventory and never be unlocked as single family residential, right? We don't know. You may end up with a whole generation of accidental real estate investors because they keep their parents home and just turn it into a rental. We don't know how much that's going to unlock. That's a factor. But no one really ever discusses the changing uh, age demographic and that is something that we're a generation away from the millennial generation is actually larger by population count than the baby boomer generation so it's not now but at some point it has to invert because the the following generations after the millennial generation are smaller mm-hmm yeah. And just cut, there's a, but you can look at Japan, South Korea. There's a bunch of countries that are having serious problems with, you know, population. I believe it's 2.1 children for every person needs to, to, to happen in order to sustain it. It's just an interesting conversation. I, we love, we just see these reports come out and we're like, okay. And that's a short term thing. But if you look at some of the data long term, it's, it's interesting to see that. All right. So last controversial one. Oh, this one's I, your favorite. Yeah. This is my favorite. Well, and it's only because I love so. Full disclosure, I'm a total weather nerd. Have you are. Life. I mean, I um, have never ever had anyone text me about the weather across the country it's more my than my weird stick. So Oof. I first it it actually started with a competitor of yours, which I won't name, released a report uh a few years ago where they tied NOAA statistics uh essentially with reports of what climate change. So everybody's not pissed off. I'm saying oh, climate change. We just lost another three subscribers. Uh, <laughs> more important. I'm not talking about how it's occurring. I'm simply <laughs> saying have. that it's happening. Um, more importantly, and, and essentially what it looks like with coastlines. This report that came out shows that 40% of people in the United States live in an area where rising sea levels will become a problem. 40% is a big number. I think it's a big number. Maybe I'm off, but like... That's a lot of people and a lot of housing. So That's nearly half. Um, <laughs> I'm not an economist, but <laughs> so I guess my question. She's laughing at us now, but my question is: is like, is this why? Why do I feel like this isn't a, a topic people are having conversations about? About how we're going to deal with housing, where you're seeing it happen, where more and more houses are underwater. The East Coast hurricane, you know, Sandy came through, and like, yet we keep rebuilding in the same spots. And all the projections are that this is going to consist. And then I, my final question is sort of tied into it. I've asked an audience this once, is this a disclosure issue? Hmm. Do we have an obligation to be disclosing this to people that the house might be, that you just bought is projected to be underwater in 30 years? I, I'm just, <clears throat> what's your take on all of this? So my take on it, it, it is a big question to solve. It's going to require more than just economists. You've got, you know, it's an engineering problem. It's a social problem. It's a political problem. It is something that's going to require everyone to get together to try to solve it. But I think the first step from an economics perspective would be to bring awareness so that mm. when consumers are making decisions, they're making decisions with all of the information. And it may be that they downweight, you know, 
flooding possibilities in the future because instead they're worried about trying to get a roof over their house now that they can sure. afford and they can't think that far ahead given the other you know, factors that they're dealing with. But I think it needs to be part of the conversation and part of the discussion. That's why we have flood factor information on realtor.com. It's available on properties. Um, you know, it's, it's not always pretty. My father-in-law, for instance, has a, um, a very high flood risk score. And I hear about it every time he visits um, <laughs> because he does not believe that his Thanks. property is that, you know, Thanksgiving is risk. so much fun, right? Especially when you're in real estate. Yeah. It's the- yeah. But, you know, it, he has done some things in his home, like he, it's elevated above a lot of the surrounding land. And my point to him is, look, you know, that is a selling point for you that you've taken steps to kind of mitigate the risk as an individual, and if people are thinking about and factoring that risk into their calculations, then they're going to value those steps that you've taken. So it's actually a good thing that people are factoring this in as part of the conversation. Um, and you but, think yeah. it's going to happen more? There's going to be more of this? Is, that, is Are economists starting to talk about this more in, in conversations no, about... No, no, they are not. They are not weather nerds. They're economic <laughs> nerds. I actually do. You know, if I wasn't going to be an economist, I would have been a meteorologist. Yes! Uh, so oh, I, like uh, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> you two hang out. But, I'm out of here. Yeah, but, I, you know, I think that's the first step. It's just making it part of the conversation. I think, you know, the flood insurance equation, I, you know, a lot... I think it still happens that people get surprised at the closing table when they need flood insurance. And that is not a fun surprise to get. So just making consumers more aware of the information. I do think there's a role for agents there to be a, you know, a trusted guide for consumers and to share the knowledge that you have, you know, because if that surprise comes up at the closing table, you never know how it's going to go. Right. Right. So it makes more sense for everyone to be as informed as possible. We were just having that with a, another pod. We had a, a, somebody who runs a big insurance company and they're talking about literally that like agents need to bring in an insurance agent at the very beginning of the process. But as they're looking at properties to see, can you get, can you get a homeowner's policy or is it going to be $12,000 a year if you're in California because of fire? Like there's just, it's interesting how the business shifts. All right. So we're wrapping up. Uh, we always like to ask this question. It's Keith's favorite question. Keith, yes, go ahead is. and take it because I know this is your... No, you do it. You do it. I always do it. It's your turn. Okay, fine. So if you were a real estate agent today, what's the one thing that you would do, change, or add to your business to make a difference immediately? So I'm probably biased here, but I think you have to establish yourself as the expert And that means getting connected to other experts and expert information. There's a lot of information out there. We put a lot of it out there at Realtor.com. You can find our research, Realtor.com slash research, lots of data. But I think knowing what's going on in the big picture Mm -hmm. is important because you've got great on the ground knowledge, but you need to take that knowledge and anchor it in broader economic trends because your clients are probably hearing about these broader trends in the media and everything else. And you can really take that, uh, take that knowledge of the big picture trends and how it compares and contrasts with what's going on in your local market and add some value. For your what was that? Ad, what was that URL again? It was, what was it? Realtor.com slash research. Slash research. Awesome. And I, I want to echo what you said because I pound the table consistently in our company and to anyone who will listen in the industry, we have to be the voice to exactly what you've said. They hear all these headlines, norm, not yours, but news headlines, which normally are fear-based, right? And not local. And that's okay. That's how media works. No problem. But in order for us as an industry, and especially as an individual agent, you are so correct in that the more that we can have an opinion 
and communicate that opinion loudly, right? Don't, if someone says, how's the market? The answer isn't amazing, right? That's a terrible answer. Uh, how about a data-based answer and specific to your local marketplace? So I appreciate you saying that because it is so, so true. Danielle, thanks so much for being here. It was really insightful. And I apologize for our insanity of the two of us and the <laughs> weird stuff that we do, but yeah. it makes the show fun. Uh, we really enjoyed you know, having your insights on stuff. I know our listeners do as well, and we can't wait to have you back. Yeah, so. thanks for putting up with us. Absolutely, it's been fun. Awesome, look forward to it. You don't want to let Keith down, do you? Hit subscribe, and not only will you never miss an episode of this podcast, but you'll also never make Keith sad. He's easily entertained.